If you have your Bibles, our text this morning is going to come from the 11th chapter of John. But before we begin, uh, I wanted to tell you that this tie did not come from a thrift store. Uh, it has someone else's initials on it, and it's a little bit out of style. I know ties are a little wider now. Uh, the initials are FCH, and that stands for Forrest Chalmers Hall. Uh, this was my grandfather's ta- uh, tie. He was a lawyer in, in Graham, the town where I'm from. Uh, my son Christopher is not named after me. Uh, his name is Christopher Forrest Gregory, after my grandfather. My name is Christopher Gary Gregory. I'm named after my father. And I wanted to tell you that this past week we went on vacation to my hometown of Burlington. And I have never been as proud to have my father's name as I was this last weekend. My stepmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's maybe nine years ago, and we have watched it progressively get worse. And we arrived at home uh, two weeks ago. We pulled in the driveway, and for the first time, it was immediately obvious to us that she was very ill. Um, before it had been primarily mental symptoms, but for the first time she physically looked ill. And my astonishment at the change that had come over her was only surpassed by my astonishment at the quality of care that dad gave her while we were there. Uh, She's lost the power of speech, but dad sat beside her the whole time, and he would put his hand on her leg, And she didn't know he was there, but he would try to feed her. And sometimes he would have to jerk his hand back because one of the symptoms is she would sort of snap down and he'd be worried about getting his finger bitten. And he would take care of her during outbursts and and everything else. The only ability she has to communicate at this point, um, and this is wonderful, is she was in choir. And even though she can't speak, there was a nonstop flow of these hymns that she still remembers the tune to. Not the words, but the tune would come out. And they were punctuated by outbursts. But there's dad, the whole time, taking care of her. And I I tell that story to say that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at this world and say, it wasn't supposed to be like this. I got a call Thursday. It was a text from Tony and Tracy. Hey, my father's passed away. It wasn't supposed to be like this. If you're like me, you've been watching the news all week, glued to it. First it was an RPG, and then it was a a rocket fired from a Soviet-made SA-1, whatever that is. 295 people, many of them children, many of them scientists studying AIDS. It wasn't supposed to be like this. The Middle East stays in this sort of constant state of a low burn. And now there's a flashpoint again. And so when we read in Genesis 3 that the earth is cursed, and let me back up for just a second. You have in Genesis 2 God taking man, and he breathes breath into his nostrils, and he puts him in this garden, and he says, Adam, 
I'm going to provide for your every need. You can live in radical dependence upon me. And that is the call of the Christian life, is to live in radical dependence upon the person of Jesus Christ. And he looks at Adam and he says, I will meet all your needs. You need food, yes, I'll give you that. You need something to drink, yes, I'll give you that. You need work to do, yes, I'll give you that. You need a partner, yes, yes, yes. But I'm going to place in the tree something that represents life apart from me, Adam. And if you want to, you can choose to live a life of independence away from me. A.W. Pink estimates that probably within a matter of weeks, Adam said, that's what I want, God. I don't want you to tell me what to do anymore. I don't need your provision. I can take care of myself, thank you very much. And he and Eve, after being deceived by the serpent, eat from the tree, and, Adam, and God immediately comes down and says, what did you do? And we see that the vertical relationship between God and man is severed in a way that's ugly and dramatic, and God says, fine, if you wanna be cut off from me, fine. Go ahead and leave the garden because that was the sign of my provision to you. Go ahead and leave and live your life of independence from me. And he looks at the snake and he says, you have poisoned this. You have poisoned this. It's like you've bitten the woman's heel and now because of that, the poison in the form of the curse is gonna spread throughout the entire body for all generations and not just through that, but through the entire land. Everything, the ground, the sky, us. is going to be radically and devastatingly affected by this. And then it's only one chapter later that we read that we're already killing each other. It took one chapter before the first murder of Cain and Abel. Cain looks at Abel and says, gosh, can't believe God's happy with you. And it makes him so mad that he rises up and he slays his brother. So we see the vertical relationship from Adam and Eve severed between God and man. But then we see the horizontal relationships between man and man are devastatingly and irreparably broken because of the fall. But in Genesis 3.15, we read this wonderful promise in the midst of these curses. Cursed be the land, cursed be the man, cursed be the woman, cursed be the snake. God says this, even though the poison of the fall has affected everything. And I would love to say it's out there. It's in plane crashes, it's in war. But the reality of it is, as G.K. Chesterton said, the problem with the world is me. It's my sinful heart, it's my sinful desire, so much so that when Eric asked me to preach, I had to call my wife and just say, honey, you and God know me. You know my lust, you know my anger, you know my pride and my arrogance. You know the hardness of my heart. Can you sit there and listen to someone like me preach? And she surprised me. And she said, yeah. And if she had said no, I wouldn't be up here today. 
So the problem is out there. There's something wrong with the world, but the reality of it is there's something wrong with me. But God promises there's going to be one one day who will come and take the effects of the curse, the stuff out there, and take the effects of the curse that are in here and begin to reverse them, begin to turn them around. And by the way, what's the most obvious symptom of the curse? I apologize, I'm used to teaching Sunday school, so I'm used to call and response here. What's the most obvious symptom of the curse? It's death. The promise is that one day, someone is going to come who's so powerful in my name that they can even reduce, they can even reverse the most obvious and most severe effects of the fall. And so if you would, pray with me, and we're gonna turn to the Gospel of John. That's the fourth Gospel. This was written by the disciple that Jesus loved. Father, as we delve into your word this morning, we thank you that one has come, one who is greater than the curse, the second Adam who got it right, who never sinned, who fulfilled your law perfectly in our place because we cannot. Father, we thank you that we have been clothed in his righteousness, at least those who of us have received him by faith have. And now would you open our hearts, would you open our minds to the reading, to the hearing, to the speaking of your word. And it's through Christ that we pray this. Amen. Now a little background on John. The book of Genesis opens with the phrase, in the beginning. And what it gives is the account of the creations of the heaven and the earth. John picks up on the same language thousands of years later. And John says, in the beginning, but then he rewinds further than Moses did. And he says, in the beginning, let me tell you what was going on. There was the word. The Greek word for word is logos. It's where we get our word logic. It means meaning. In the beginning, was the word, the meaning behind everything. And the meaning of it all was with God. The word was with God. And not only that, the word was God. The meaning of it all was with God, but at the same time, he was living in fellowship with God, and he was God. And then in verse 14 of John 1, you see that the word became flesh, that the word came down, he made his dwelling amongst us, and the rest of John is written to demonstrate that this is the one that was prophesied about in Genesis 3. This is the God-man. This is the one who had the power to take the curse, the poison of sin and death, and began to reverse things. And so, as we turn here, if you look at your bulletins, you can see here a, a brief outline of the Gospel of John. The first half of John is a prologue. Excuse me, the first chapter is just the prologue. He's introducing who is this Jesus person. But then you can see John is basically, after this, divided into half. The first half of the book, given in chapters 2 through about the end of 11, can be commonly referred to as the book of signs. And what we see here is that in the book of signs, there were seven signs, seven major signs that John records Jesus having done. They were signs that Jesus did that pointed to, it's me. And by the way, seven is the number of perfection. And in Scripture, oftentimes when something is mentioned seven times, it's, perfect, it's perfected. So Jesus 
does seven miracles, seven signs that all point to the one who is prophesied throughout Old Testament about is me. The second half of the book of John, uh, given in chapters 12 through 21, is the book of glory. It's primarily about his ministry in Judea, his ministry in Jerusalem, and what the passage we're going to look at today is the very last sign given in the book of signs. It's his greatest miracle. It's the linchpin. The book of John is divided into half around this passage. And so if you would turn with me to John chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. If you're standing in Jerusalem, you could not have seen Bethany because there was a ridge separating it. The same way if you're standing in downtown Chattanooga, you wouldn't be able to see East Ridge. There's a ridge, and it's on the backside of that ridge away from uh, Jerusalem. So what that created for Jesus was a very nice sense of isolation. You could go to Bethany and feel like you were away from it all in the big city of Jerusalem. And what we know from history is that this was sort of the place that he went to relax. This was the place that some of you have summer homes or places that you visit on your vacations where you feel like you can just let your hair down, you can just kick your feet up and go, ah. This is what Bethany was for Jesus. And by the way, this particular family, this little family here of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we know from what we're about to read that Jesus felt especially at home with these guys. He could go there, relax, be himself. He was out of sight from Jerusalem, which was good, by the way, because at this point in time, everybody was trying to stone him. Bethany comes from a contraction, by the way, of two Hebrew words. Beth, meaning house. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Uh, Bethel is the house of the Lord. Beth-ani means the house of the poor, the house of the destitute, the house of the sick. And so, you see here the character of Jesus to relax, the place where Jesus felt like he could go to get away from it all was with, of course, the poor and the sick. People like me, and maybe like some of you. So we read here, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And you remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Martha's scurrying around, doing everything she can to get prepared because they've got the rabbi, the one that we've been hearing so much about. And of course, Mary is down at the master's feet and all she's doing is listening to him. And Martha comes up and says, you know, rabbi, you know, Lord, I'm doing everything here. Do you not care that my sister's not helping me? And of course, Jesus' response is, Martha, In the Greek, it says you're being torn apart. You're worried by so many little things when only one thing is necessary. And Mary's doing it. So this is the village. When we read this, we already know that Jesus has been here many times. We know that Martha is probably the oldest because she's clearly the hostess. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. 
John records this here just to differentiate Mary from all the other Marys. Every time you read a gospel, there's a Mary somewhere. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene. In this case, this is a different Mary. This is the Mary who in John 12, you're going to read, will anoint his feet with oil. By the way, anointing someone's feet with a year's, with oil that cost a year's worth of wages, that would have been quite the talk of a town in the village of the poor. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. What do you not hear in that passage? Well, I don't know about you, but I am so good at telling God what to do. I can tell God what to do, when to do it, how to do it, what I want to see. I can make deals with him. I can make promises that I'll never keep because all of that means that I don't have to be dependent on him. And that's what we're talking about this morning is a life of radical dependence. Now, having said that, when we pray, are we called to pray specifically? Are we? Yeah, absolutely. When we come to the Father, it's good to say, Father, be with this family because they're going through it. Father, be with me and here's my sins. But there are also times, if you read Romans 8, Paul says, and we in our weakness do not always know what to pray. There are times when a situation may be so horrific or confusing are complicated, that the best we can do is say, Lord, they're sick. I'll never forget, I was in a session meeting years ago, and Render was praying for, for someone's child who had walked away from the faith, and his prayer was, Lord, I plead the blood of Jesus, because I don't know what else to pray for this person. Are we to pray specifically? Absolutely. But there are times when the situation is so confusing, the best thing that we can do is to go to our Heavenly Father and lay it out and say, Lord, do what you want to do. Jesus prayed that. Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Into your hands I commit my spirit. There's no orders. There's no request. It's just, here's the situation. I remember uh, Frank and Bev and Kelsey and I were having lunch uh, several years ago, and just before lunch, we had gotten a phone call uh, to the church, and the phone call said this, something happened to Andrew Smith, something with a bomb, and one of his feet appears to be it's severely traumatized. And then as I was leaving, the next message was, okay, they amputated one of his feet, and it looks like it could be worse. And I remember, it was Frank and Bev and Kelsey and I, because we were getting ready to go to Uganda, and sitting there and realizing, you know, this could be the first call of many. And I don't know how bad this is gonna be. And trying to find the words to pray, and we ended up just saying, Father, the one you love is sick. 
Would you do what's best because you know and we don't? Some of you have children that are struggling. Some of you have parents who are struggling. Some of you have marriages that are struggling. Lord, the one you love is sick. Would you do what you think is best? If you continue reading in verse 4, we read Jesus' response, or lack thereof. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And just as a, a quick aside, it's easy sometimes to fall into the belief that if God loves me, I will have no problems. Or if you're going through trials to sit and say, God, are you mad at me? Have I done something to merit this? If you love me so much, then why did my father die? Why is my stepmother sick? Why did this plane get blown out of the sky? And what we read here is that Jesus desperately, specially loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and yet allowed them to go through this. And we've got to remember, how did God feel about his son? He loved him desperately. The Greek says he was in love with him. They were united. Again, the only three times God speaks about the son in the New Testament is just to say, that's my boy and I love him. And yet, it was God's goodwill and God's good plan to say, I love my boy. But he's gonna be betrayed by everybody. So much so that in the King James, it says Jesus was a man of constant, unending sorrow. And yes, God loved him. And in the end, he was beaten to within an inch of his life, and God loved him. He was betrayed by all his friends, but God loved him. He was crucified naked on a cross, the most shameful death the Romans had, slow, public, torturous. God loved him then there was a resurrection. So we have to do away with this myth that so many can buy into that if, if calamity is happening, well, I must have done something because clearly God would never allow this to happen. No, Jesus loved Mary and Martha. He knew what was going on, but he said, my timetable is not your timetable. And so the second thing that we see in this passage is that radical dependence on God, which is the life that Adam and Eve had, it's the life that Jesus had, it's the life that we're called to, means radical dependence on God's timing. As to the why, why would God allow something like this to happen? How many times have you thought that? Lord, what in the world are you doing with this? You know, when I first became a believer, I, I would look at my sin and think, you know, it's okay. God's going to shoot me with his magic bullet, and I'm going to be healed of this. And so I would look at my lust or my pride or my arrogance or my anger. And after a while, I started to think, God, what are you doing here? I'm still pretty lustful. I'm still pretty proud. I'm still pretty angry. When are you going to come and make things right? And Jesus gives the answer here. In verse 5, he says, 
or excuse me, in verse 4, he says, well, the illness doesn't lead to get to death, but it's for the glory of God. In other words, my timetable, Chris, doesn't revolve around your comfort. My timetable revolves around my Father's glory. I'm going to act. You can rest in that. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you a hope and a future, but I'm going to do it at that point in time which will glorify my Father the most. Not when you'll be the most comfortable, not when you'll be the most happy, not when the American dream will be the most prevalent in your life and you're pursuing your happiness. No, when my Father will be glorified. So for those of you who are in these situations where you're going, Father, what are you doing? When are you going to fix this? The answer Jesus gives is, at the point in time when my Father will get the most glory. And praise God for that. Martin Luther said, God always has three answers to prayer when we pray. God always answers prayer, no matter what. When you pray, God hears it and he answers it. The first answer that God gives us when we pray, when we present our request to him, is okay. There are many times that you've prayed and God has said, yes, I'll give you that. The second answer that Luther said is no. And there's a myth, I think, that we have sometimes that when God says no, that's an unanswered prayer. I, I prayed for this and God refused to answer it. No, no is an answer. If my kid says, can I have this? And I say no, they don't get to say, I didn't hear you what? I didn't hear you what? I didn't hear you what? No, the answer that I gave you was no. And praise God for his no. I can't tell you how many prayers that I've sent up to my heavenly Father that were selfish, that were so limited by the situation that I was in that I couldn't see anything but my own pain. And God said, no. And I might have danced around and complained a little bit. I might have named it and claimed it. But by the grace of God, he didn't give me what I wanted. And I'm so thankful today for God's no. The third answer that Luther said God gives when we pray, I hate more than no. It's harder for me than no. I think it's one of the hardest words in the English language. God's third answer to prayer oftentimes is wait. Not yet. And so if you would, Turn with me. We're going to continue reading in verse 7, excuse me, verse 8. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Now, after this was two days later. It took a day for the messenger to get there. They were there for two days. And then on the fourth day, Jesus said, all right, let's go. In other words, his answer to Mary and Martha, who he loved, was wait. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. You going there again? Jesus answered sort of enigmatically, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles 
because the light is not in him. In other words, what he's saying here is, look, in the work day, remember, this is ancient Near East. There are no clocks. The work day is a set amount of time from sunup to sundown, 12 hours. You can't do anything to take the time away. You can't do anything to add time to it. So Jesus says to his disciples who are saying, look, if we go to Judea, Jesus, they've already tried to stone you. They've already tried to capture you. If we go there, it's going to happen again. And Jesus says, no, there's a set amount of time here. If you try to protect me, you're not going to lengthen it. And if you try to keep me here, you're not going to shorten it. There's nothing they can do or you can do. I have a set amount of time to do my work. So now while the light of the world is here, stay close to me. So they walk to Judea and listen to what Thomas says here. If anyone walks in the the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. If anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in in, uh, uh, him. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And that was just the picture, by the way, a profound expression of faith. When someone dies, is it permanent? Well, no. You know with the resurrection, they're going to get up again. When someone sleeps, it's not permanent. We know they're going to wake up again. By the way, cemetery means the place of sleep. It was just a common expression in the Old Testament for death. So so Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said, whew, good. If he's just asleep, we don't have to go to Judea. Because I don't know about you, but I don't feel like getting stoned, Jesus. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. But Jesus had spoken of death. Ah, but they thought he was take, meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. This is a miracle, by the way. There's no way he could have known or should have known had he not been who he claimed to be that Lazarus had died. No one told him that. He told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And then he gives the second reason for his delay, the second reason for God's timing. And for your sake... I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. The King James translates this as, so that your faith may be increased. I think it's important here just to take a minute to consider what could have happened. First of all, what could have happened is Jesus, and he had done this before, could have simply thought, Father, Heal Lazarus while he was four days away. And Lazarus could have been healed right there. That's the magic bullet. It could have happened immediately. All he had to do was pray for it. He could have gotten there while Lazarus was still sick. And he would have been seen as this great healer. Boy, Lazarus was on the verge of death. And God brought him back through Jesus. Wasn't that wonderful? He could have, like he did with the nobleman's son, and come to Lazarus right after he had died, that very day. And people would have said, wow, he healed someone who was dead. And all of these would have had doubters. You know, was he really dead? Uh, Was he really that sick? He might have gotten well anyway. But Jesus waits four days. There was an ancient Jewish belief that we see attested to about 200 A.D., uh, which meant it had been going on for hundreds of years before it was finally written down. The belief, and it's, it's... Absurd now, 
but the belief was that after a person died, the soul of their body would hover over the corpse for three days, deciding whether or not to go back into it. And if decay had begun to set in, or as the King James said, if they began to stinketh, the soul would do what we would do and leave. But if someone had been dead four days, they were dead, dead, dead. So Jesus says, I'm not going, I love these guys, but I'm not going right now, number one, because I'm on my father's clock and my father wouldn't get the glory that I want him to have if I went right now. But number two, he says, I'm going because the miracle that I'm going to do is going to increase your faith in ways that you can't fathom. In fact, this is amazing. In the the 12th chapter, in the next chapter, what we see, and spoiler alert, Jesus does raise Lazarus. And what we see is that Lazarus tells his story and people everywhere begin to come to Christ because of this resurrection story. So Jesus says, I'm here that your faith may be increased, and you don't see it now, but I'm gonna do something way more glorious because the situation is going to be far more dire than you think, but the glory, because of that, is gonna be greater than you can imagine. And so, we see Lazarus in chapter 12, he's telling people, and you can imagine people sitting around and saying, you know, what do you think about that philosopher, Jesus? What do you think about uh, that rabbi, Jesus? And Lazarus saying, you know, he brought me back from the dead. And I want to encourage you. Would you, sitting here now, be willing to share your resurrection stories? Because a lot of you have them. Doug McCarran has them. Patty Wilson had a wonderful resurrection story. Some of you are in marriages that God has taken and breathed life back into. And I need to hear about it for the increase of my faith. It increases our faith when we tell each other our resurrection stories. The stories where we say, man, this was dead. And then Jesus showed up and he brought it back and now it's abundantly alive. Would you share your resurrection stories with each other and with me? Finally, as we read the radical dependence of Lazarus, verse 16, Thomas Hebrew name was Didymus, it meant the twins, where we get the phrase ditto from. Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. And on its head, this looks cynical, but I'm gonna tell you, Thomas in a sense prophesies because what is the call on your life and my life if we're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? Thomas says it. It's a shame we call him the doubter because his life was characterized by pretty bold faith, but we have this snapshot of him sometimes at his worst when he didn't believe, and we say, well, that's doubting Thomas. 
Thomas was bold here. The call of following Christ is a call to die to myself. It's a call to look at my wife sometimes and say, gosh, you know, I really wish that we weren't doing what you want to do. But I love you. It's a call to look at God sometimes and say, Father, this isn't the way I would have done it. Mark and I remember we're praying, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And I remember Mark started his prayer and he said, Father, this isn't the way I would have done it. So Thomas says, let's go and die with him. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, and he did, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. By the way, that was the common pose of mourning, according to Job, is when you mourned, you didn't get up. You were comforted. You didn't comfort other people. Martha was probably irate. She was probably filled with anguish and disappointment. And so when she comes to Jesus, it's probably in tears. It's probably in something of a rage. It's probably with a sense of indignation. And she says to him through the tears and through the anger, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You dropped the ball. You didn't show up. And don't forget the picture that we have of Mary and Martha. They had been with Jesus. They had experienced his graciousness. They had seen his goodness. So as Lazarus began probably to have a cough, began to show the first signs of illness, they began to say, okay, that's okay though. We know Jesus. Let's pray. And then Lazarus began to have to stay in bed increasingly, but that's okay. Jesus is gonna come. We know the one who will take care of this. And then eventually Lazarus was asleep more than he was awake, and they said to each other, it's okay because Jesus is gonna come. We know he has, and now his breathing is ragged. Send word to Jesus because it seems like he's forgotten us, so we don't, we don't know what's going on. Every time somebody walks in the door, we're expecting to see Jesus, but it ends up being more Jews from Jerusalem, and I'm thankful for that, but what I need is Jesus. And so finally they say, okay, too late. He's passed away. But maybe he'll come because we heard about this righteous nobleman and he raised her daughter, his daughter, so maybe he'll be here now. And the funeral comes and goes and Jesus doesn't show up. And the first day comes and goes and Jesus doesn't show up. And by the fourth day, he's not coming. If he was going to come, he would have come days ago. And so she comes out and she in a sense says, now you show up? Now you're here? We have been on our knees for weeks, if not months, begging that God would send you here because we know that God hears you. This is what she says, because we know that God hears you when you talk to him. If you had been here, you wouldn't have happened. What were you doing? 
You dropped the ball. But even now, even now, I want you to know that I'm yours. That's what she says. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. And so Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he's going to rise in the, in the resurrection on the last day. How often do people try to comfort us with some sort of truth? And we just sort of say, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. Look, my theology is good, okay? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. I, I know all this stuff. I've got it. My theology is impeccable. I know that on the resurrection, we're all going to live again. And Jesus stops her. And look at what he says here. She said, I know that it will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. Your theology is okay, Martha. But if you're missing me, you're missing the point. Some of us have wonderful theology but it's cold, and dead, and lifeless if it doesn't point us to the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus looks at her and says, the theology that you believe, and she's quoting Isaiah 35, 36, it's good theology, there will be a resurrection, but she missed Jesus. And so Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. Incidentally, what was God's name in the Old Testament? It was what? It was Jehovah, or, or to say it another way, Yahweh, which means what? I am. Guess how many instances we have recorded for us in the Gospel of John of Jesus saying, I am? Seven. It's the perfect number indicating that Jesus was the perfect atoning sacrifice, the one who was coming to reverse the effects of the curse. So Jesus says to her, in a sense, I am. In other words, pointing her to God, I am that resurrection. I am personified from the future what's going to happen. It's me. And then he tells her this. I am the resurrection, I am the life. And if you believe in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives in me shall never die. If you're in here today, you were born spiritually, excuse me, you were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. All of us were. Because of the sin of our first parents, we were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. If you're in here and you don't know Jesus Christ, you are still spiritually dead. Jesus makes this promise. If you believe in me, I will give you a spiritual resurrection. I will breathe into you the same way that God breathed into Adam, new life. If you've tried to live your life independent of me, if you've tried to live your life on your own terms, there's a good chance, and I know this from personal experience, 
you've wrecked it. There's a good chance you're sitting in here beat up and bloody and bruised because life lived on my terms doesn't work. So Jesus says to Martha, I bring new life. Will you trust me? Bill Higgins, uh, several months ago, made the statement that every day of the Christian life is another day of learning the same lesson. Will you trust me? That's Jesus' great question to us now, is will you trust me? Second, though, we read Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life in the present tense perpetually in the present. I don't know what your kids are doing. I don't know what your struggles are. I don't know how your marriage is. I don't know how your addictions are coming. My guess is some of you might be doing okay. Some of you are probably hurting a lot this morning. There are times that I hurt. There are times that I can't sleep. There are days that I don't wanna get out of bed in the morning because I'm so depressed. That's part of my struggle. And I have to hear regularly Jesus say to me, Chris, I came to give you resurrection today. For today only will you trust me. Chris, I came to breathe new life into your marriage today. Will you trust me in the present tense today? And when I do, I begin to see the curse the curse of selfishness, the curse of sin, the curse of fear and anxiety reversed in my own life. So we're gonna close by singing a song that's typically sung at Christmas, but it's not a Christmas song. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. The Lord has come. And where does he come? As far as the curse is found. Everywhere. He comes to bring resurrection. Would you pray with me? Father, you have come. You have come to bring us new life. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who may be spiritually dead. Would you breathe into them new life? Would you breathe into them your spirit? Would you save them? Father, we pray for those who are hurting, who are struggling. Even now, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would send Jesus to breathe life into our marriages, to breathe life into our pains and our struggles. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers. It gives us joy. Would you meet with us now as we worship? And it's through Christ that we pray this. Amen.